I'm going to be talking about trigger warnings and safe spaces, and especially how they're really good to use in an activist kind of space. And then being activists, hopefully you'll find this useful. So, obviously I'm pro-trigger warning, so I'm going to start with a trigger warning and I include one in my abstract. Um, so basically I'm going to be talking about disability, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, suicide, can encompass those kinds of things. Also going to be talking about discrimination that some groups can face. Other groups can be triggered by people with disabilities. So queerphobia, racism, homophobia. But I'm not going to be going into any graphic detail about any of those topics. Um, that will cover my talk. When we move on to the discussion, uh, I'd ask to keep within that trigger warning if you feel the need to go outside that, that you raise another trigger warning. Or if I see people talking about graphic stuff, I'll raise another one. Um, that's where we're at the moment. So my experience with mental health and disability, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety in 2006 and with chronic fatigue syndrome in 2012. And I've had two incidents of post-traumatic stress disorder, 2008 and 2013. I'm an animal rights activist and a human rights activist and I've worked with people who've experienced trauma as well, such as refugees. So I've been trained in dealing with people who have had traumatic experiences. And I was also a youth advisor to the board of Amnesty International Australia and worked with them to create their first safer spaces policy because they hadn't really looked at creating that kind of space before and that they often put out triggering material without the use of trigger warnings. So that was really the starting point for me to start thinking about how can we make safe spaces. So first of all, I'll go over some of the terminology. I think it's always really good to put that there at the outset. Um, looking at the idea of disability versus disability with the dis brackets. Uh, why mental health needs to be seen as a disability. And then the various things that activists need to be aware of, which is safe spaces, trigger warnings, working arrangements, being inclusive. I'm going to be looking primarily at mental health issues, but other disability issues often can take these things into account as well. So generally, the preferred term is person with a disability rather than disabled person. So you'd say a person with Down syndrome, not a Down syndrome person. Although there are some activists who dislike that, but of course you're going to get people with different views about that. But that's overall what's accepted. Um, the term able body can be used, but if you want to talk about your privilege more generally, which can include mental health and other things, then you can say I'm a person without a disability or a non-disabled person to encompass all those kinds of disability. Now, our society has many ableist uh, languages, many insults. Um, the R word up there, which I'm not going to say aloud, is one of the you know, most triggering um, words that I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with. But there's other ones that seem less obvious, um, like crazy, lame, dumb, stupid, idiot. All these have ableist origins, and it's definitely something that I've become more aware of. And they're, they're words that should be avoided as well, even though people might not associate that with a disability. So it's the same with phrases when people say blinded by or uh, turning a deaf ear or you know, Gary Francio, moral schizophrenia, you know, you need to be very careful about the use of these terms. And there's lots of other alternative words and phrases out there that you can use. And I'll give you the website at the end which has a great list of, of other ones, ridiculous, obtuse, inane, ignorant, uneducated, you know, anything that describes Tony Abbott it just goes right in there. <laughs> so a disability, so a lot of times people think about a disability, think about a person in a wheelchair, a visible, a visible disability, but there's physical, intellectual, there's psychological. You can also have an imputed disability, someone can see you as having a disability that you don't have. Some people aren't aware that they have a disability. For example, with mental health problems, might not actually be aware that they have a disability, so you need to be aware of that. Uh, and then some things are going to change in a person, some things 
going to be day to day static, so you're not necessarily going to know. With micronics heat syndrome, it's definitely something that changes from day to day, from week to week, and you can't assume that just because I can get up and go to work one day that I can get up and go to work the next day. And then this notion of disability, which is about looking at the ability rather than what you can't do. So for some people with autism spectrum disorder, they can have really amazing abilities in maths and science and music that are extraordinary and that other people just can't match. For me, I think that my mental health issue and my exposure to trauma definitely gives me greater empathy with others. And in fact, with my parents, little adopted dogs who have been through trauma, when I see them being triggered and traumatised, I really connect to them on an emotional level in a way that I often don't connect with people because I feel like they're like my sisters. They've been through what I feel like I've been through, the same kind of trauma. So that's a really amazing thing that it gives me. That's why I want to work in social justice because I want to advocate for others. So I think that is the ability that it gives me, but at the same time, you don't want to be dismissive of the actual implications that this can have for people. So my chronic fatigue syndrome, while I do have more empathy for people who, can, who can't move around and who get tired for things, is definitely still a major hindrance in my life. So there are different aspects to it, but you, especially if someone comes in with added sleeves, oh, isn't that great because you're so empathetic and emotional, makes you better, it's like, no. It's, it's your place to say what, what you feel about it. So depression is, according to the World Health Organization, the leading cause of disability in the world. Um, other sources say second leading cause. So it's something that's it's extremely common with statistics ranging from 25 to 50% of the population having some form of mental illness at some point in time. And we're slowly starting to see more awareness around that, but there's still definitely stigma around that. Uh, I think that the more that you talk about, certainly the more I talked about mental health, I found in my social group it was extremely common to have extreme mental health issues. And I definitely, then you realise you're not really alone with that at all. But I think the better, the social society progresses, we'll be more open about this kind of thing and sharing with it and, and seeing that as a genuine disability. I mean, I've found at university, if I say I've got to withdraw from a unit group due to chronic fatigue syndrome, they're much more like, yep, yep, legitimate, go, go ahead and withdraw. But if I say mental health, I get a very different response. So even though they're treated the same legally under law as disabilities, there's different responses to that. And so I think as activists, we want to be pushing forward to be the most progressive and the most inclusive of all people with disabilities. So activists really need to know about this stuff because we're often dealing with traumatic issues. We're working with people, animals, others who've experienced trauma, and we need to know how to deal with that trauma. Uh, we ourselves can be exposed to trauma. If you're going into a slaughterhouse or if you're doing any undercover investigation, you yourself can suffer from traumatic stress. And as well because we need to set the best example. We need to say this is how we can be an inclusive society, this is how we can make safe spaces, and then we can push that for other forums, universities, other places to adopt that, that kind of approach. So the kinds of things I want to talk about for activists how to make safe spaces, and that includes use of trigger warnings, being inclusive, how to make adjustments to working arrangements, preventing burnout, something I actually had to cut out because that's not much of my talk. This is a, a more extended version of my talk because one of the other speakers is no longer presenting. Um, but activist burnout is like a whole other thing that I can go on to. But I really think, have a look online, um, look at what some of the street medic collectives, what they talk about with burnout and activism, uh, because I think that's a really important issue as well, but it's 
kind of, there's so much to cover that I couldn't really look into it. Alright, so this is from Advocates for Youth, their definition of a safe space. So, it's somewhere where anyone can relax, be fully self-expressed, without fear of being made to feel uncomfortable, unwelcome or unsafe, and it's account of things of sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, mental ability, all those kinds of things. Um, and it has rules to, regard, to guard each person's self-respect, encourage others to respect others. So it's primarily come out of the, the queer movement that talked about advocating safe spaces for queer people, and it's something that's being adopted to make spaces welcome for everyone, um, not just queer people, other people who might feel out of place in certain settings. Now there's been criticism of trigger warnings and safe spaces, um, even in uh, The Guardian published an article very critical of, of trigger warnings. And I just want to talk through, first of all, some of these uh, criticisms that when, when, when you get criticism from the left, I think we generally, generally take it a lot more seriously because we think there might be actually something legitimate to that. We always want to make our politics more progressive. Um, so in this article in The Guardian, Jill Filipovich talks about trigger warnings being counterproductive. She talks about primarily in a university situation. She talks about it stifling free discussion and the challenging of ideas, that it doesn't empower survivors of violence. Um, her, she thinks a more empowering way would be, like she talks women like survivors of sexual violence to instead go up to their lecturer directly and explain they're a survivor of sexual violence and ask for trigger warnings, which I think is incredibly insensitive and ridiculous suggestion. I'm a survivor of sexual violence, I wouldn't be approaching my lecturer and discussing that with them and asking for trigger warnings. But she thinks that'd be a more empowering thing to do. Um, she talks about some traumas are worthy of warning, some aren't. So she says only in the context explicitly online feminist spaces, trigger warnings are allowed for sexual violence and eating disorders, and that's about it. She limits it that way. She thinks it makes women feel more vulnerable if women are getting trigger warnings, um, and they're basically being reinforced that you're vulnerable in society. And she also says the university is not a place for that, it's a place for learning new ideas and not stifling and um, censoring ideas. So I just want to go through some of these points. Um, the first one about free discussion, challenging ideas, safe spaces and trigger warnings are about allowing people to make informed decisions about what they participate in. And that's so that they can prevent being re-traumatised, um, having mental health implications, and ultimately it, it saves people's lives. It's it's a, you can still have triggering topics discussed, but it's done in a way that is safe for people. So there's a trigger warning that people feel like they may be triggered, can leave the room, or just opt out of the discussion altogether. For example, depending on the context, but you can read the abstract and be like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go along to that topic. And then you can have a discussion that could be incredibly triggering for some people, but it's within the context of people who are like, I'm okay with this, and I can handle this, and we can discuss this. So you could have um, a discussion you could be up against, you know, the most right-wing, homophobic, horrible person, and you could have someone who's like, I'm all right to go and take them on. I don't mind, it's not going to upset me. You know, sometimes I've had discussions with people about feminism, and I'll, I'll say to my partner, Mick, who's a man, I'm like, you go and deal with them, I can't, I can't deal with this and try to argue about why feminism is important, it's too triggering for me. So sometimes you can have someone stepping as, like, an advocate who's not from that group to support that, and sometimes you can have people who just don't feel personally triggered by it and may have experienced it, but are happy to talk about it. So you can still have those kinds of discussions. Um, so yeah, I think her claim that uh, survivors of violence should directly ask for warnings to people like lecturers is really insensitive and 
especially in the context of a, a young female student, for example, going up to a probably male lecturer, um, Nick's a university lecturer and I don't think he would ever expect a female student to approach him and tell him about the most traumatic thing that ever happened to them so that he could make it fit around them. I think it's really insensitive. I, um, I think there are other ways to work around this. That's the use of trigger warnings. That's, you know, you know in a unit outline, a particular lecture, can have a warning of this discussion. Um, alternative, and say like, you can request alternative material that's not triggering if, if you want to look at that issue. Um, you can arrange things so that assignments might have a one triggering topic but not others, and people can choose what they're comfortable with doing. Uh, she talked about some traumas are okay of warnings, and I just think, well, an intersectional approach, there's no hierarchy of oppression. I don't think survivors of sexual violence like myself should be put on a pedestal. It's like, oh, you get trigger warnings when no one else does. All that oppression and all that trauma is all linked, and everyone's worthy of being able to make an informed choice and to consent to what kind of material they want to be participating in. She talks about it making women feel vulnerable. Um, well, trigger warnings are designed to protect vulnerable people, and women are vulnerable in a sexist society, and gay people are vulnerable, and trans people are vulnerable in, in a society that's oppressing those people. And I think it doesn't actually bring those women or gay people, or anyone who's triggered down even more, it's protecting those people from being re-traumatised and triggered, which I think is the lesser of two evils, one reminding them that they're vulnerable, which they are, um, as opposed to triggering them. And lastly, this idea that university is this kind of, I don't know, this amazing kind of place that should just be all these free ideas are started for and it's so wonderful all our learning and everything like that. I think universities, um, as part of society, should try to be inclusive and universities can be great in leading the way about inclusivity, having queer representatives and women representatives. and so. I think that they should look at themselves as being part of this way to basically assist with mental health and to bring things forward. And that's definitely, every university in Australia is legally required to have a program for people with disabilities. It's a program I've used myself. Um, they, they are designed by law to be set up to assist people with disabilities. And I don't think they should be excluded um, merely because they're, they're worried about starting of ideas. So looking about making safe spaces, you want to have ground rules about language and conduct and conflict and having a moderator, and they should know the procedure if there's going to be a breach that you can intervene. Um, having at least one moderator as well as some grievance officers. So it depends on what kind of setting, whether it's a meeting or um, an event, but you want to basically have it set up with these kinds of um, frameworks. Use of effective trigger warnings, and I'll talk about those in more details later. As I said before, a safe space doesn't mean you have to start a free speech or discussion of certain issues. You just need to make the space safe and that people have informed consent if they want to come along and participate in that. I would avoid certain language altogether unless you've got a trigger warning in place. So don't say the R word, which I'm not even going to say. Say sexual violence or sexual assault. Avoid extremely derogatory terms. Um, I'm sure no one here would think of saying the N word rather, uh, aloud. But those kinds of words, even if you're quoting someone or if a derogatory term for a gay person, you can say derogatory term for a gay person. You don't have to actually say those extremely triggering terrible words. Um, unless, if, if that kind of language is, is necessary for a certain reason, then it should be in the context of, of trigger warnings, and really it should be a person of that, of that group that is going to be putting out that language. So as an anarchist, I base my life about consent. Everything's about consenting to participating in things, and that's really, really what this comes down to. So that means that you don't force people to speak, so you don't say, ask everyone to speak if someone's not comfortable, you don't pick them out of the audience. Um, 
there's other ways that you can ensure that people who might not feel comfortable talking in public can contribute. So you can break discussions down into smaller groups. You can have people submit questions on piece of paper. Um, and that's quite good for queer groups and sex education where people are embarrassed about talking about something. They can put something in there and then it can be discussed with everyone. Um, it's also good to think about the gender pronouns that people want to use. If you're not sure what they're comfortable with, you can use the gender neutral form, which is they, or just refer to them by their name. Um, some people might feel comfortable telling you what kind of gender neutral pronouns that they prefer. Now, it depends on what the, the topic is, but if the session concerns a certain group, then really the moderator speakers should be from that group. An exception is really when you're an advocate for, so for animals who can't come here and, and talk about what they feel, we are the advocates for them. But as I said, also people who might be extremely triggered might want an advocate, or last year I had with someone who worked with prisoners talking about that kind of experience, and that, that can be necessary as well to have those people come in. Um, so, for example, if you're looking at um, talking about people of colour, you really want people of colour to be the ones that are embracing and, le and leading that discussion. And then if you see that certain groups are dominating that discussion, you can ask for other people to contribute. Sometimes it's important for people to have their own space, so women-only spaces, survivor-only spaces. That sometimes is appropriate. Uh, and when I say women-only, of course, I include cisgender and transgender women in that. And so sometimes people need to speak freely without the fear of an oppressor or without offend worrying about offending someone. I mean, I'm sure if you're a vegan, there's ways that you talk about people who aren't vegan that you wouldn't say in front of them, like, oh, I'm so frustrated because they're doing this and this and this, and you're going to say that directly to someone who doesn't understand why you don't eat dairy or anything like that. But sometimes you just want to uh, get things off your chest that you, you can't say. You want to have someone who can directly relate to what you're talking about. So men, heterosexuals, white people, other people that might be excluded from these groups, shouldn't take offence to the fact that they're excluded. They should see that, that those people need their own space to express their views. Um, and so women and survivors of sexual violence, you know, they can have a fear of all men. I certainly went through a phase where I feared all men. And so men shouldn't, um, you know, who identify as feminist allies, shouldn't turn around and say, hey, but I'm on board with what you're saying, because sometimes those women need that space. So sometimes it is hashtag all men, not hashtag not all men. Um, and that's nothing that feminist allied men need to take offence to. It's also really important to be critical of yourself and have awareness in yourself about your own behaviours. So just talking generally about the kinds of things, men often dominate discussion and talk of women, they need to be aware of that. Young people and elderly people are often taken very seriously, so be careful about how you interact with those people. Um, white Western people you know, here in Australia need to be very careful about how they talk to people of other cultural linguistic backgrounds. Um, and especially in regards to that culture's use of animals, being animal activists, a lot of sensitive issues can come up around that and people need to really take a step back from that and listen to what that group has to say. Another thing is that to avoid getting caught up in your privilege or, or white guilt or man guilt or whatever that is, you want to acknowledge it and not be defensive about the fact that you have a privilege, own up to your privilege, but then leave it to that group to reclaim their space rather than making it all about your particular guilt that you have that privilege. As um, Dr. Cornell West said, it's not always about you white people, and the same applies to cisgender people, men, heterosexuals, any other privileged group. Sometimes it's just not about your issues and your guilt. So triggering topics, there's no definitive list. It covers a broad range of things. Anything that's related to violence, 
um, hate and discrimination, abortion, especially if it's an anti-choice kind of view, uh, death and suicide, miscarriages, and anything that can trigger a trauma like car collisions, war, natural disasters, burglary, workplace bullying, those kinds of things. You generally know what could be a sensitive issue for someone. And so if you don't really know what someone's situation is, it's best to avoid talking about triggering things unless you know that they're in a place where they're not actually going to be triggered by that. So what's an effective trigger warning? Uh, you need to, uh, trigger warnings have to be effective. So they mention the triggering topic as well as if there's any graphic discussion of what's going on. For me, I know that definitely, I, I like to be more informed if there's going to be a graphic detailed discussion about sexual violence in this, in this talk. They need to precede the discussion or the event, and they need to give people a chance to avoid the session or at least time to leave the room. So ideally, people can have the, the choice just to not attend an event or a session, so you have the information on the flyer or on the Facebook event page and they can just choose not to. Or at the start, they can think, okay, this is what it's going to be about, and they're prepared. Sometimes people just need the warning, sometimes people just want to walk out of the room. If the conversation shifts to new triggering topics in the conversation, then the moderator or any person or person speaking should bring that up and give people the opportunity to leave the room if they want to. If you think you might be triggered, then sitting near the back can make it easier to leave, and bringing a book or a friend so that you can leave can make it easier. And then you want to be careful after the session that you're not talking about triggering topics really loudly and other people might be over here. Someone might have been really triggered and sat there during the entire session and just not want to talk about it. So just be cautious about the aftermath of these things. Now people without any kinds of disabilities or people who want to feel that they can connect more with these ideas, mental health, mental health first aid courses are really great. And um, Nick, my partner, went on one at his university and they're just giving me really great insight into practical things to do with people with different mental health issues. Um, now there's a few things to be sensitive about with progressive views. Um, so medication is tested on animals and I take medication to help me survive, so it's kind of the kind of thing I don't want someone, an rights person questioning me about. I've never had that personally, but I know some people can be a bit, uh, I guess more in the, the, the natural kind of way of things, or don't take medication, it's not good for you, or the pharmaceutical industry is really bad, or, or anything like that. And that's just going to be really upsetting to someone who relies on medication. The cultural appropriation of mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness meditations come from East Asia, Buddhist culture, and it's actually a really great method for treating depression and anxiety. It's also good for other people who don't have those issues but just need to relax sometimes. Um, th there is possible cultural appropriation from East Asian culture. So if you're dealing with someone who practices mindfulness to stay alive, like me, um, we could be really sensitive if you're going to talk about that topic. So that doesn't mean that you might not have legitimate points, but you might want to brace it with someone else who's not going to feel triggered by that. And the use of guide dogs and any other use of um, dogs that assist people with disabilities. Uh, obviously, we don't think that animals should be used, but you want to be extremely sensitive because you don't know what it's like to be you know, a visually impaired person who needs to rely on that. Uh, Beyond Blue have really great facts, so it's important to read about that. If you think that someone you know might need help, encourage them to seek help. Most people who get mental health support do so because they had a loved one who told them to. So it's important to, to do that. So that there's so many ways now that you can do that. That's online, there's books, there's crisis line, you can go to your GP. There's a lot of different ways you can do that through the university counsellor, whatever way someone feels comfortable with. Uh, and for those people who want to know what you do in life-threatening situations, 
there's a, there'll be a mental health emergency response team in each state and territory that you can contact. The crisis helplines like Beyond Blue or Lifeline. And the police also have jurisdiction mentally ill people, especially where there may be a risk to others. Um, but I know that other people would have other issues with the police, which is my, why you might want to contact the emergency response team or the crisis helpline in the first instance. So making adjustments to working arrangements. All of this can apply to your working, your volunteering, your, your NGO, that kind of thing that you're doing. Because people with disabilities have a right under law to request reasonable adjustments to working arrangements. It's something you can negotiate with your employer or if you're volunteering for an NGO. So it's something that I negotiated with my chronic fatigue to get one day off a week when I was doing work so I could have time out. Now the Australian Human Rights Commission has a lot of great information about this kind of thing and, and your rights as far as in, in workplaces and volunteering and, and generally universities. So I encourage people to go onto that website because that's got a lot of great information about making claims. So basically, be aware of your language, make safe spaces, and educate yourself about disability and what trauma is like. And let the oppressed groups speak themselves and own their own space. So some of the resources that I used, Safe Spaces Advocates for Youth do really great work about pioneering safe spaces. Um, and the second website's got a great list of um, ablest terms to avoid, but then the alternative words that you can start getting into your daily vocab. Because I know those other words just come to you, they come to me readily because we're just so used to saying them. Um, Beyond Blue has great information about mental health. And then that's the website for the Human Rights Commissioner if you're concerned about any kind of disability discrimination issues. If you're feeling depressed or if you're concerned about anyone, you can get in contact with Lifeline Beyond Blue. They both have 24-hour crisis lines. They also have now web chats, which are really great because it's a less confrontational way to talk to someone about your mental health issues and they're at limited times. I know for me, I, I would never feel confident picking up a phone, but a web chat for me would be a lot less confrontational.